I think it was about 12 years ago, sometime 12, 15 years ago, went in front of Mr. Warren Buffet and Mr. Charlie Munger. You gotta stop. I know that's a joke. You can't say buffet. It makes you sound like a dummy head. <laughs> this podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Something really bad happened this week, Doogles. There were some votes cast in favor of your opinion from last week, which boom makes me very frustrated. Boom. And the then good it went the news, opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> the good news is that we're tied. This cannot stand. <laughs> oh, it absolutely can't. Well, yeah, no, it can't because I'm gonna win. <laughs> this cannot stand. Okay. Hit the even if you've done so before. Hit the trail again. Is that what it's called when you go in to vote? The booth. Hit the booth again. Yeah, yeah. SkippyDougals at gmail.com. Let us know whether you believe. You know, let's abstract it out. It's just Dougals versus Skippy. This is getting personal. (laughs) It's all about Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. If you have no clue what we're talking about right now, you have to listen to the last episode. It's about Dougals' poor take that some copyright law should go to countries or something or last longer than 95 years because he's fired up about winning the poo. Skippy Doogles at gmail.com. Should there be some kind of quote unquote iconic copyrights that the government is able to save and not have go into the public hands or no, should we continue being lame? I think that's hogwash, but I am tempted just probably uh, maybe somewhere along the Colorado Denver metro area. Uh, to get a group of listeners together and hit up this Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey movie Ooh. as a like show event because I think I need to see this movie with you now, Dougals. I think that's just <laughs> what has to happen. Yes, and then there will be like an over under on whether or not we can make it through the whole thing. Oh, I'm staying. I'm gonna love every <laughs> second of that. All right, what do you want to start off today? Fish bullet. I want to throw some shade. Better yet, I want to talk about people throwing shade. And it's one of those, I'm like in this this 100 degree, no shade zone in the Mojave Desert. And I really liked sliding under the shade tree. You, you follow no, that? Let's, no? no. All right. But I love here it. Here we go. Douglas, how do you lose a million dollars? Like blank check style? Like that kid that got hit on his bike back in the 90s? Mm, no. Listen. So two investors saved $10,000 annually for 40 years and both invested in the U.S. stock market which returned an average of 8% per year. This math, I haven't double-checked it. It's from at Honest Math on Twitter. We'll hope that his handle is true. Investor A buys passive index funds through Vanguard with an annual expense of 0.08%. They end up with $2.5 million. Investor B still invests $10,000 a year. It's a great return. Uh, For 40 years, buys the exact same funds they invest with do 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 Edward Jones. Edward Jones charges a two percent annual fee with expenses, and I think some of their funds even have a front load, which is like something from the eighties. It's so bad. Dun dun dun. They end up with one point five million dollars. Oh my goodness, man! This makes me think about Coolio. Why does it make you think about Coolio? Me and Edward Jones got a thing going on. We can call it love, but his show is strong. That is, right. I, I, I love this depiction. It's so clear. And listen, I don't know why I love throwing shade at Edward Jones. It's not really about Edward Jones. I'm sure there's some fine people that work there. But a 2% expense fee annually is insane. We're talking 20, 20 plus times Vanguard. And it, it truly eats. We haven't talked about this on the pod in maybe a year and a half. And it's something that's always important too. Uh, keep in the back of your mind. Now, the difference between a 0.08% fee and a 0.15 or a 0.25, not nearly as huge. I can fully understand why some ETFs or mutual funds are more expensive. It makes sense. That's a different debate. But make sure none of your investments are falling in a bucket where the expense ratios are over 
gosh, even half a percent probably. And you're going to make yourself a million bucks. It, well, hold on, hold on, <laughs> hold on. You too strong. I was, I was going for a simple conclusion to wrap up my thought there. I, I know. And you had it. You had it. It was, <laughs> it was just like when my former boss was crushing, crushing this client pitch. Right. We were like, we got the deal. Money's in the bank. Right. I'm starting to yeah. starting to do my Dougal's jig. And then she closes it out by saying, it's just like the old saying goes, you can take a horse to water, but you can't teach it how to fish. It's <laughs> that like, did not happen. That, that, that did happen. <laughs> that did happen. So here's, here's where it went awry. There was a promise of a million dollars, a thing that you were just talking about. <laughs> but yeah, the, all right. Yeah, I think the raw point like, is that there are, we've discussed hidden fees so many times on the show. Uh, this is not a hidden fee. But people, I think, hide it from themselves. It's a very transparent fee. You know you're paying 2% or you know you're paying 0.08%. I think where we hide it from ourselves is we don't look at the averages and the percent that that percent is of the Uh, average. I I disagree. A lot of people that don't know squat about investing know they've seen some Edward Jones commercials and there's competitors. So I'm talking about Edward Jones, but there's other ones that are just as bad. And they say... I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to go talk to this person. They get the fancy printouts that are gloss covered. They talk to the receptionist at the front of the office. All that stuff costs money, people. They go to the, these offices are spread out every five miles across most of the US. Like all that stuff costs money. And they get this peace of mind, which is great. That's what Edward Jones is selling, that they're going to do things the right way. When it turns to something that's not so great is when the advice they get is pretty common sense, personal finance advice, and then they take a 2% annual fee to do that. That's incredibly expensive. Okay, I can buy it. And it reminds me of something in my fishbowl. Let's go. A very famous individual in the world of podcasting today about... I think it was about 12 years ago, sometime 12, 15 years ago, went in front of Mr. Warren Buffet and Mr. Charlie Munger. You got to stop. I know that's a joke. You can't say Buffet. It makes you sound like a dummy head. (laughs) (laughs) Using my nine-year-old's vocabulary. It makes you sound like a dummy head. Okay. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. So at their annual meetings, the, uh, the Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings, they always have a Q&A. People can come up, ask questions, right? Um, not anybody, right? But they select questions people to ask. I'm going to play maybe like the first 30 seconds, let's say, of this clip, and then we'll summarize a bunch of the other parts of it, which get to the heart of what you were talking about here. But I just really enjoy how, and by the way, this is Tim Ferriss, is the famous podcaster I was talking about. I, well, here's what I love about this. We'll get to the investing part. But what I like about this is today, Tim Ferriss interviews all these people right? World famous folks and is charismatic, is is he confident, is self-assured. I'm going to play this. Here's some stuff. Here's some stuff. Let's go to number six. Uh, Hi, my name is Timothy Ferris. I am a guest lecturer at Princeton University twice a year. And I'd like to touch on an earlier question about investing with small sums of money. I'd like to ask both of you, if you were 30 years old again and had your first million in the bank, how would you invest it, assuming you're not a full-time investor, you have another full-time job, you can cover your expenses with other savings for about 18 months, no dependents, and it'd be really helpful for my students, for myself and others here, if you could be as specific as possible about asset classes, percentages, whatever you're willing to offer. Well, I'll be very simple. I, I... Can, can I guess Buffett's that? answer? How uh, cute is that? Cute. It's, yeah, it's pretty cute. Okay. What part of the, there's so many layers of the onion to break down. The, what, mm-hmm. Where do you want to start? Well, I, I want to make sure that we do summarize Buffett's answer, but you just want to talk about the question? I'm going to break apart the question first. It's, it's classic Tim Ferriss, even though it's before he's famous. This is classic, this is classic Timothy. 
damn it. Okay, so it's actually the thing I love about this Diggles is it reminds you that people come from somewhere in a, in like a very obvious way. Exactly. Um, he said guest lecture at Princeton twice a year, probably because that's the coolest title he had at the time. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. Like, like you said, now he's, I don't know how many millions he's worth or how popular he is, but like, he's a big deal. And that was the best thing he had going for him 13 years ago. Yeah. I mean, his, his like sub caption, you know, when they have, they have the caption, when people are like in a documentary and they say what you, what you are, yeah. his sub caption now is multiple best-selling New York times author, number one podcasts uh, mm-hmm. in America angel investor early investor in dot 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 like he's got all this stuff like that happens now and then he was like a couple times a year i break into a lecture hall at princeton yell some things (laughs) and leave so i'm gonna have to contact him and tell him that his his headline should be someone who doesn't follow buffett's advice because clearly buffett did not tell him (laughs) to go write some books invest in early stage companies. I mean, come on, man. How disrespectful is this? It's very true. It's very true. Okay. To summarize the question, what Tim Ferriss is saying is he said, if you are an investor who's not a professional investor, you have a million dollars in the bank, you're young and don't have responsibilities, not married, no kids. How would you invest your money? That is the question. And then what, to your point, he got real Tim Ferriss about it. And when I want specifics, like, tell me. It would be helpful which... for me and my students because yeah, exactly. I'm a guest lecturer. Yeah, exactly. He's like, uh, tell me what brokerage to use, who at that brokerage, <laughs> what their email address is, where they went to college. Like he, because Tim Ferriss loves to get into the detail, but he's saying, what are the asset classes? What percentage breakdown would you have? So could I, can I guess at Buffett's answer? I honestly haven't listened to Buffett's answer. I just yeah. listened to the Tim Ferriss part. I bet he said. Index funds uh, with 10% bonds. Is that what you said? You're very close. You're very close. No bonds. He He said said, 100% index funds? Yes. He said, yeah. He said, uh, you are self-proclaimed amateur investor. And so I would put it all in a low-cost mutual fund, probably with Vanguard. That was Buffett's answer. You said this is 2010. When what year is this exactly? Um, this was no, it's 2008. So oh, okay. The, then the I understand why you said yeah, yeah, because the uh, the S and P 500 is a deal at that point. So that yeah. makes sense. Now, where it ties back to what you were talking about before, which is a fantastic point, is Buffett also said, "No one else will give you that advice because they aren't paid to give you that advice." Yeah, Mike. <laughs> Drop skippity doo dah. Well, I it, it. sorry, I can't get off the Edward Jones point. Edward Jones is giving you that advice. They're just charging a ridiculous sum of money to so you can stop by the office once a year, mm-hmm. and so and they then, can like write down notes to remember your kids' names. <laughs> which which Tim Ferriss wants to know. Tim Ferriss wants yeah, to know. The Tim kids Ferriss names. is like. The other part of this, Tim Ferriss is like he wants a robot that sends him a quarterly email summarizing market performance and remembers his kids' names. Exactly. But to buy Vanguard funds, I love it. The other part of this I really liked is what Buffett says. He, this sounds like it's condescending, and it might be, but I think it has a purpose for it because Buffett will often use synonyms. I'll say for. Uh, amateur investors say something like a know nothing investor, right? Which might sound like a condescending term. The yeah. purpose of it, I think, I, I think a strong purpose, whether or not Buffett means this, I don't know, but a strong purpose of it that it serves is to emphasize how knowledgeable Buffett and Charlie Munger believe that you should be if you take the route of investing in individual stocks. That's like their that's their belief structure. I also mm-hmm. think that you should be pretty knowledgeable, but that's why they use this. But here's here's what Buffett says. You'll get a perfectly decent return doing what I said over a 30 to 40 year period. And why would you expect anything more than that when you don't bring anything to the party? It's pretty condescending. I don't think he mean <laughs> he meant it that way. But no, this is the 
the real challenge when it comes to investing. Like hardly anyone wants to spend the time to do the actual research to understand the human psychology that is as a play and everything else. And then everyone wants above average return. And what he's saying there, you know, he's similar to Munger, who we talked about last week in terms of he's just not going to beat around the bush anymore. He's answered the same question thousands of times. And that's the right approach. Yeah, I totally Agreed. am on board. Agreed. I buy it. I loved it. Love the clip. Love everything about it. Love the beginning nervousness. Love the answer. Fishbowl me. This podcast, although I read the transcript, is called The Five People Keeping Bitcoin Alive. And I almost fell off my chair reading this. Um, <laughs> okay. Bitcoin's current market capitalization is somewhere around $500 billion. Diggles, walk me through the Bitcoin talking points. Which which talking points? Like the Pretty sell? much one. Decentralized. Future of finance. Digital. The world's coming gold. to an end. If the, <laughs> if, the, if the world comes to an end and everything is burning down, don't trust the government. Own Bitcoin. If you go back to the creation, and listen, I'm nowhere near an expert, uh, right? The great creation? In 2011, coming out of the... <laughs> no. Of Bitcoin. In okay. 2011, coming out of the global financial crisis, we're going to create this new type of money. Satoshi uh, does writes this brilliant paper. Like, this is now almost a fairy tale in terms of how brilliant it was and how it's decentralized across all these computers. And, hey, I believe a lot of this. I still hold a little Bitcoin because I think there's a potential for an asymmetric outcome. But, like, the party's kind of stopped, right? Well, if you believe this breakdown by a Wall Street Journal author named Paul Kirian, names are not my strong suit. There are really five people that work on the so-called Bitcoin core that upgrade the technology to fit into new apps and new systems. And of course, the technological world in 2023 is much different than the technological world in 2011. So it makes sense just from like people like us that know about business and software that there needs to be some people behind the scenes maintaining this thing, right? And according to him, and he's done a deep dive and written articles about it, uh, there are five people that do this. They get paid in grants, uh, typically between a hundred and one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, which is interesting because a Google engineer can make two to three hundred, right? So it's not like they're play paid incredibly well there's no formal interview process there's high turnover with this group i'll pause for a second but the the real like sit down and take a deep breath moment that comes out of if this is true is you have a 500 call it a 500 billion dollar company call it that that five people maintain basically the code for and everything that happens is dependent on those five individuals. How not decentralized is that? And how fragile is that? Uh, This to me just continues to fuel the whole fire that there there's the, you brought up the fact that the creation story of Bitcoin is at this point, a fairy tale. Yeah. The whole thing feels like a freaking fairy tale to me. To be honest, I mean, it, yep. and it's, it's just, again, it feels to me like I was jokingly said this before, but I do actually think a version of this is the thing that, that like makes my brain explode is that Bitcoin to me makes perfect sense. If your bet is on the global financial system burning down and simultaneously Somehow servers are still running. <laughs> Someone is still like making sure they happen. You like it, it's such a it's such a weird thing that like now it now it just feels even more powerful because you have to say that all breaks down. But these five people are still like, cool, I'll keep doing it. Like, you know, like the rest of the world's yeah. falling apart, but you have five. Yeah, people, for my like, below you- average salary. And and basically it seems like there's even some names in here. It seems like they all do it because they like Bitcoin, which is cool. <laughs> let, me, let me give you one more example 
again, I haven't independently validated these facts. I yeah. just trust in here. Apparently, in September of 2008, someone reported a crash in Bitcoin Core where developers um, noticed that you could create coins out of thin air or potentially spend the same coin multiple times. What is the entire like the entire talking point for Bitcoin Doogles? It's fixed supply, <laughs> right? That's where the value comes from. In September 2008, there is a bug that these five developers <laughs> had to go in and fix that allowed people to either create Bitcoin out of thin air or spend the same coin multiple times. That doesn't, if that's true, that doesn't mean that Satoshi actually cracked the code at all in 2011 because there's clearly bugs that enter the system that allow his core principles to be overwritten, right? Well, I mean, the whole thing, I shouldn't say that. That was way too aggressive and I don't know nearly enough about this. So let me say this. It it seems to me as an outside in person that the brilliance of all this is blockchain. And Bitcoin is a use case example of blockchain. That, That to me is like the way to read this. And so like Satoshi wrote a paper about blockchain and Bitcoin as a currency that could run on blockchain. The currency is the thing that gets like all of the, um, I'd say mass media attention, not all the attention because blockchain gets a lot of attention for other reasons, but like the mass media attention generally goes to Bitcoin. But to your point, I mean, the, the currency wasn't foolproof. I'm not saying blockchain was, but like, but to me, I think blockchain was like the at least what that stuck with me. It was the big thing that stuck with me. That's my whole thing. We had this debate before that my my take when on that logic deals is always like, well, blockchain's not anything special. It's an it's an self spreadsheet ledger. Like that's all it is, and then it happens to be public. So I don't know. I would say if you're interested, <laughs> we're gonna post a link out, read it, and it's just the most interesting thing I've read in like three months and it's literally a five minute read is fascinating so yeah we're not experts but if that's true i'm a lot less bullish on bitcoin and it this actually i don't know you know if you know about solana or ethereum or all these other ones that have nonprofit foundations that basically run and steer the the direction of the coin or the currency that makes so much more sense because they have organized almost businesses set up to navigate the future with these currencies. And Bitcoin, I think, rebels against that. Like that wasn't in the white paper, right? Yeah. And it doesn't feel decentralized. But if you are leaning on effectively volunteers to run the thing and maintain the thing, you'd be way better off having a nonprofit foundation to do it, in my opinion. <laughs> That makes more sense to me too. All right, I'm gonna transition into the fishbowl. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna summarize what I'm about to talk about, which which is a t- Twitter thread. I'm gonna summarize this Twitter thread and actually tie it back to the Bitcoin piece in maybe a too loose of a way, but by saying that one of the things that's scary to me in financial markets is when you find these pockets of large amounts of capital that are pretty flimsy. <laughs> and there are there are hidden areas, like hidden to the mass market, areas of capital, pools of capital that are riding on potentially a house of cards. I'm not saying this is definitively when I'm going to talk about a house of cards, but like what scares me is when I come across these things. So $500 billion in Bitcoin, five people, five underpaid people who are basically volunteers out of passion holding up $500 billion. This one is about 816Z. All of all of what we're about to talk about here are this Twitter thread. Haven't done a lot of the other research. It's not a, I don't know. I have neutral feelings about 816Z, probably. Mm-hmm. Like, um, But this is about 816Z, and I think it's interesting. Uh, so Tyler Tringas, who's the founder of a Calm Company Fund, they invest in early stage profitable businesses. This is like all up Skippy's alley. Um, that's not what Skippy does, but I'm just saying it's like, they, they look for businesses that are calm, they call it, right? And so your small, yep. 
You're early, but you're profitable. Boring, profitable. That is exactly up my alley. That's there you go. Where you I go. live. I do I do wonder how long they sat in a room trying to come up with a name because all they could think of was boring. And they're like, we need something that doesn't say boring. That's already taken by Elon Musk, first of all. Second of all, anyway. So they came up with calm. So that that's uh that's Tyler. Has this Twitter thread about A16Z, and here are some of the the highlights, and then we'll get into it. So one is A16Z has raised somewhere in the 25 to $30 billion range over the last decade. The vast majority of that has come in the last three years. And what Tyler's saying is that a lot of this capital came from this context of we're in a zero interest rate environment. And so there are people, limited partners, who are the people that invest in funds like this. There are limited partners that are looking for any return, right? And since they're looking for any return, A16Z was able to amass a large amount of assets, right? That's effectively cheap capital for them. And then they use that to make huge bets on crypto and late stage unicorns for the most part. A unicorn is a company that is valued at over $1 billion in the private market. And there've been a lot of them over the last few years, right? A billion isn't even like a, became not even a special thing, right? Over the last few years. To give you a sense of scale, so remember I said about 25 to $30 billion raised. I got that just by looking at this chart. $7 billion of that was raised for crypto. I don't know what it was invested in, but it was raised for crypto. Okay, so that's the context. And the big question is, so how's this going to end? And I'm going to read one of, one of Tyler's tweets here. It says, if there's one thing I've learned from a year of speaking to lots and lots of institutional LPs, it's that I have no idea how they're perceived this or anything else, really. Not a group of people that I found a predictive mental model for. <laughs> so what this tells me is that the folks that are engaged and invested in this fund, what the heck they're going to do based on all these facts, who knows? And what's going to happen to this capital where we have $7 billion of it, not necessarily in Bitcoin, but are in crypto. That was in crypto. The crypto bubble predominantly was over like the last year and a half to two years. So you're betting a lot of that, right, was invested during that time period. We don't know where that's going to go, but that's when it was invested. It's a big question mark. And so this brings to me, it's another hidden pool of burning capital. Yeah. So a couple of things. Let's assume that you're right, that Tyler um, shares my mindset with a lot of things about conservative, profitable, safe investments. Uh, that means that the A16Z business model and other venture capital ones is, is not a place where he's naturally inclined to play uh, because his brain doesn't work that way. So that's an assumption, but just assume that. If we assume that he's more likely to be a naysayer than mm, others, than even folks like Mark, like Bill Gurley, right? Who is conservative, but lives in VC and is experienced in VC. So I don't know if this hypothesis is tilted or fair to A16Z, but I think there's um, takeaways here that are relevant to all investing. And I think he's just doing a really good job highlighting what that means for these VCs. So yeah. what happened from 2008 to we'll call it 2020 is everything made money. It's really easy to have a company become a, that's the wrong term. It was easier than average to have a company turn into a unicorn. It was easier than average to make money with early stage venture bets. And that meant that A16Z and other VCs like them had really impressive track records, right? They had really impressive track records with relatively small amounts of capital. Like if you look at this chart, in 2015, they raised maybe half a billion bucks. In 2016, they might have raised two billion bucks. In 2017, there is again maybe half a billion, like nothing. And then in 2022, they raised almost 15 billion dollars. So the capital that floods to them comes to them because of an impressive track record. And that impressive track record is due a lot to luck, a lot to skill, and a lot to other factors, right? And brand name, and like brand, a brand name of the humans. I mean, not necessarily even of the firm, because you have Mark Andreessen, yeah. who started Netscape like 30 years ago. Yeah. Right. As an example. Yep. These people are super talented and yes. their track record shows it. So, but I just think of that as like your retail investor in 
2020 or 2021 being like, have you seen what's happened in the stock market for the past 12 years? This is the time to throw my money at it. And like, did you see what happened to GameStop? Like there, this is my chance to get rich. So money always floods in at the top of a bubble. And I think what he's effectively pointing out in the simplest sense is just the money seems to have flooded into VC at the top of the bubble as well. And then here's where I think this gets really interesting. We all agree that in VC, the outcomes are more asymmetric than average, than large company <laughs> investing of public companies, right? So that means the returns on the positive side can be up 100 times, up 1,000 times, just absolutely massive. But the returns on the negative side are also going to be a lot more volatile. So if you just believe those two things, that humans are natural to throw money at a bubble and and at the late stage of the bubble and then vc returns are bound to be more volatile this could create a huge challenge huge for the vc huge. space agreed with all that and another part of the quote unquote hidden pools that i'm talking about are what's under a16z because it's the ramifications and we're using a16z here as an example right but it's the ramifications of of some of these things falling that are sometimes like a question mark, like what's under the $500 billion in Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. What's under A16Z? Do you have teachers' pensions? Because a lot of who started starts has started like really throwing money into um, a lot of these VCs are like in the last five or so years, they're both typical investors, I'll call it, but also like really large pension funds, right? For teachers and firefighters and states, right? And all um, state employees and all that kind of stuff. And so who, I don't know. I don't know who the limited partners are in A16Z, but that's the kind of thing I start to think about is when these things start to unwind, who it's like Bill Huang, right? A couple of years ago that we were talking about, yep. like yep. They, they, it can happen quickly and you just don't know what the ramifications are. So it's a, it's an interesting take. Uh, I don't know what when you dig into this, all of what it looks like, I think it's just an interesting take by Tyler. And so appreciate you putting it on the Twitter. It's good stuff. The housing markets are in trouble, Dougals. <laughs> yes. And basically that's interest rate driven, but it's also uh, driven by increasing home prices. So again, you talk about this everything bubble, home prices went way up. That was basically funded by interest rates being really, really low. Now interest rates are back closer to historical norms. And in a few spots, home prices pull back, but they're not affordable. Um, you can look at metrics like taking the existing home price divided by the average weekly earnings, and it's effectively at like a 50-year high. It's come down a little bit in the past few months, but... It's not affordable. What I learned this week, which is so fascinating, the Wall Street Journal had a great article on Airbnb. There's an Airbnb bubble now, Dougals. So Say more about that. I didn't read about it. So there was a lucrative, it was lucrative, right? To buy a mm -hmm. mountain property or a mansion in Montana or a surf cottage. And be, especially like three years ago, right? Low interest yep. rates and the dynamics of that investment completely changed for a short-term rental. So I'd be shocked if almost everyone listening to the call hasn't listened to some friend or acquaintance in the past five years talk about how they own these rental properties. But what they found out, this magic hack, was that if they stopped doing long-term rentals and start doing short-term rentals, they juice their returns. And I know people that actually completely changed their business model from the more predictable, I'm going to be able to cover the mortgage long-term rental to the, I'm doing all my properties short-term rental because all I have to do is be occupied like 17 days a month and I make better returns than a long-term rental. And I know people that, like I said, completely divested their uh, multi-million dollar portfolio with long-term rentals, switched to short-term rentals. Well, it turns out this is just like businesses. <laughs> <laughs> that when there's great returns, when there's great profit margins, there's more competition. I I love that. I love that. It turns out this is oh god, that's what it is. 
it, so so what Airbnb has right now, and it'll take me a second to pull up the stats, but they have too many of these listings. And this has become like, it was really pitched as this no-brainer. So not only is it real estate, which everyone's like, oh, real estate's like the best investment around. Like I could sleep all at night if I own real estate. But then it was like real estate that makes better returns. And it hasn't popped yet, but man, I don't know. I, I think it's headed that direction where there's just going to be way too many short-term rentals available. And then the downward spiral is no fun. If people don't rent your property and you're on the hook for that mortgage, are you going to switch back to a long-term rental? In a lot of cases, you're not because you bought this vacation property where people would struggle to afford to live there as their permanent resident. It's fascinating stuff. And yeah, agreed. And scary, man. It's just like another example. Everything, there's everywhere we look. What was that song from back in the uh, back in the 80s? It's like, um, I always feel like somebody's watching me. Right. I, you know that song <laughs> I'm talking about? I feel like it's like that. But every time I open up the Wall Street Journal, like another corner of the market. And when I say market, I mean like economy, the whole thing, the whole thing yeah. is like looking like no bueno. I, I hope is I hope it's not terrible, but just like another no bueno thing. I was reading this piece about how uh, millennial debt is now like real bad. And uh, I just go, whew. The other thing that makes me think about is arbitrage opportunities. I'll call them artificial arbitrage opportunities, yeah. right? And how people need to recognize when something is recognized and then admit to themselves when something is an artificial arbitrage opportunity. And if you want to take advantage of it, treat it as such. Because a lot of times, let me actually back up. Here's what I mean by that. So arbitrage is when you have the difference between two prices and the two prices should not actually be different because potentially they are the same asset let's call it and so the arbitrage is effectively quote unquote free money that exists between the two when you take that outside of markets investing etc what i mean by arbitrage opportunity is an artificial gap in the market where once someone realizes that that gap is there the gap will disappear and these mm -hmm. things happen sometimes. It happens at work, right? When you're like, the company should operate this way. Like this thing should exist. So, but I'm going to insert myself to like fill the gap. And then don't get upset when the company just realizes that there was the gap and they just fix it. And then you no longer are able to do that thing. Like there are these artificial arbitrage opportunities. And this feels like it was one of them. This being the whole 0% interest rate thing, <laughs> but in a microcosm, this whole thing. And people get stuck in this and then... If you didn't realize that that's what it was and get in, get out, ouchies. Well, so now we're talking arbitrage opportunities. This is right in my wheelhouse. Oh, <laughs> you'll bet I'm going to take some arbitrage here. One, I'm going to have some really cheap vacations when this thing crashes, man. And the <laughs> the surf condo that used to cost 500 bucks a night, when it costs 100 bucks a night, I'm going to be there. I can guarantee it. Um, to put a bow on this, Airbnb added almost a million global listings in 2022, which is a 16% increase. They've been doing that for years. I mean, and I put it in context this way, like, do you think 16% capacity in hotel rooms was built last year? I would hope not. You're coming out of the, you know, a pandemic still like, so yeah, I expect this bubble to pop. And I'm going to have my popcorn ready. I can't wait. What is the definition of a bubble? There's the fishbowl transition. What's the definition of a bubble? Cliff Asnes, who runs AQR Capital, was interviewed by Bloomberg. And there were a few points in the interview that I, I thought were particularly interesting. I want to highlight them, see if you think they're interesting too. One, so much as we were talking about Einhorn before and the blowout 2022 performance over there. AQR also had really great performance in 2022. In fact, it was a record year for about a dozen of AQR's funds, one of which is the Absolute Return Fund, which is the like the oldest running, I'll call it primary fund they had, which had a 43.5% net of fees return last year. Boom, boom, shakalaka. The question that was asked was, do you feel vindicated? And Cliff was like, kind of. Right. That was that was the answer. It was like a little bit. It said, one, we had a phenomenal year and 2018 to 2020 
were terrible yeah. years. So he said, I feel partially vindicated. Maybe it'll turn to a yes in like a, if the next couple of years do what I think the next couple of years will do, which is that value ends up um, outperforming. All right. So we'll have to see on that one. So I enjoyed that. But now let's get to the bubble point. There was a question of like, are we in a bubble? And Cliff said, who the heck can define a bubble? There's so many different definitions for bubble. But I then and then he goes on to talk about not a definition of a bubble, but where he thinks that we are, which I thought was interesting. The answer was not just yes. He said the end of 2020 felt like we were in a bubble saying not since the in like 2000. Right. Did it feel that wild and out of control from a valuation perspective at the end of 2020? But now he said it doesn't feel like the market's in a bubble. It feels like the market's very expensive. But and the difference between those two is really important because this ends up being we've we've mentioned this a couple times over the past few weeks. This is where it's like it's a stock pickers market because the market as a whole, he's saying, is very expensive, but not fully in a bubble. Everything's not necessarily in a bubble, which makes it pretty interesting. It goes back to was it mid twenty twenty one where you were like, I can't find anything <laughs> that is showing me right that something's worth investing in. So I thought that point was was really interesting. I'll pause see if you have any comments there before I go on. I completely agree. I think you articulated that well. Another point, which I just love because this is a part of your investing is contradictory thing. He starts talking about the 60-40 portfolio. <laughs> and he says, so he says 60-40 portfolio, which is a portfolio of 60% stocks, 40% bonds, right? That's like your typical diversification play, your typical like written about diversification play. And then he pauses and goes, I don't know anyone that actually owns a 60-40 portfolio. <laughs> it's like what he said. But we are I do. A lot of those target date funds effectively <laughs> end up at 60-40 portfolios. <laughs> here's, here's what I love though. He goes, I don't know anyone that owns a 60-40 portfolio, but we are legally required to talk about 60-40 if we talk about diversification. <laughs> I just loved it. I loved it. Okay. Now the last point, and this is the very end of the interview here that I enjoyed was they asked him about AI and investing. And I thought these were a couple pretty interesting points. He said, in his belief, AI works well with big unstructured data sets, mm -hmm. right? Um, but when it comes to like small nuanced data sets, and specifically he was talking about the the premium between cheap versus expensive stocks right now, what you're saying is like a, it's a smaller data set. He's like, I think actually human beings will do better then. And then the second thing, which we've mentioned sometimes is, when you have to answer the question of, should I stick with my current investment strategy when it's not doing well? So that is also a thing that in his mind, an AI like a chat GPT will not be able to do as well as a human being. It's sticking out a thing that, here's, this is my words, not his, sticking with a thing that does not make logical sense. Yes. You know the talking points on AI right now are shifting towards AI's true capability is, is going to be open source, specifically trained within your company to do the task that you want it to do. Have you heard those talking points? No, it makes sense to me, but I haven't. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that, and this is from someone who's done a lot of data science in their career, is like even to do fairly basic data science at large companies, I would typically run into sample size issues. Well, yeah. <laughs> you can't do good data science. You certainly can't. You don't have enough models to train an AI in a way that you can actually trust it. Like it's just amazing potential, but I'm not sold that the use cases are actually there just yet. Yeah, and the way, and I, I don't know anything about the like the deep side of AI and whatnot, right? When I like really getting into it, but the thing that makes sense to me, yeah, it's a version of of the the for the point that that not that you were making about the point but the actual point <laughs> you were talking mm -hmm. about there is there are things in a company that you need to be like best in class at it's it's your core competency this is our advantage don't give that to ai then there's stuff in your company that you could have be like a c plus to a b minus and actually you just need it done yeah. like something needs to be yeah. done directionally ai can take care of that there's a bunch of stuff in the middle of course right but I think there, there are things where you're like, we just need like a directional answer to this and we kind of need it quickly. And so we could either put a couple of human beings for two weeks on this to like figure out the directional answer, or we can just go 70% right is fine enough and we can actually have that's it in fair. 10 minutes. Like, I think yeah. that's where 
AI well, is really going to... It, 10 minutes once the model's deployed and trained, which could take yep. a significant amount of time. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. Cool. That's all I got. All right, let's hit that jingle and jump to listener mail. Love it. Here it goes. They fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. So first, here a shout out to John, who sent us uh, a Moody's Analytics breakdown on climate change uh, for different U.S. economies. Newsflash, Dougals, I won't go into the details here. If you live in Florida or Louisiana, South Carolina, etc., you might be in for some flooding at some point in the future. Heard it here first. <laughs> you shocked by this? <laughs> yeah. Our... Uh, you know, lack of an ocean here in Colorado made me feel better about things after working through this. <laughs> yeah, but being where we are, it's like when you take all the things, uh, earthquakes, tornadoes, transition from energy, right? What else was it talking about? Hurricanes, right? All that stuff, like, cool. We're pretty good. We lucked out in this lottery. Uh, the next piece of listener mail we got, I think was from Adam. This is about Coinbase earnings, Dougals. And this is one of your pet, topics where you get fired up so just <laughs> hold back okay it's not fun to throw this much shade at coinbase but this balance sheet is interesting well did, did we get a PL and a balance sheet here i'm just pulling yeah, it yeah, up we, we got a little column a little column <laughs> i'm gonna stick in because you pause i'm gonna I'm step in right quick so i love this because it, it's like the best markup i've seen in a lot most humorous and entertaining and um with intelligence behind it markup i've seen in a while but one quote Coin earnings look like a smeared turd on a sidewalk. <laughs> Continue. All right. Well, let me ask a question first. Uh, <laughs> he talks about AUM, which is, which is assets under management, being down 71%, which obviously uh, most digital currencies are down at least 71%. So even if you have your same customer base, your AUM goes way down. I don't know Coinbase's business model well, but I thought AUM didn't really matter for them because they charge fees on purchase events. It's not like th then they take, like the Edward Jones model, then they take a percentage of your holdings each year. In investment management, AUM really matters. In Coinbase's business model, does AUM matter? Or is that just, he's just trying to show that that, means the rest of the business is hurting because there's less resources to pull from with transactional uh decisions yeah my interpretation was that plus just popularity right like if you if you take it to the extreme if aum went to one dollar yeah how are you going to tie your company that's fair okay that that was kind of my interpretation all up in here though all up in here there's some expletives you know what I'm saying? There's some yeah. emojis that represent expletives. It, this is brilliant. We're gonna we'll put this on the uh, on the Substack on Monday because it it's just like a really interesting markup um, that makes me not even want to check the stock price on um, <laughs> on Yahoo Finance, but I did. So I looked at this and I was like, "How's Coinbase doing? Up seventy percent for the year?" And I just went, "I give up." Okay, well, let's hit a, uh, just a few high-level points. So total tra transaction revenue, full year 21 was, these are millions, so almost $7 billion. Uh, full year 22 was $2.3 billion. That's different, Dougals. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's different. That's true. That's um, true. Their interest income is way up. So they, this guy's making jokes about Jerome Powell helping their business model, which is interesting because they're holding a lot of cash and treasuries, basically. And that almost saved their Q4 reporting. That's funny. I was surprised they Coinbase did layoffs and their full-time headcount at the end of 21 was 3,700 people. And now they have 4,500 people. So like, it's the same with um, the Googles and the Metas. Like they hired so rapidly that even if they did layoffs, they still... Yeah, they're still up. Like the headcount's way up. So that, just those trends alone, if you look at revenue being, gosh, less than a third of what it used to be and your headcount going up by like 800 people, 
on a base of yeah. roughly 4,000. Like that's not sustainable. This gave me one new goal in life. And that goal is if I am ever in charge of or an executive of a public traded company to never have anyone mark up my financials and use <laughs> things like poop emojis, the word insane and lols. Where is the LOL on this? I got it. It's down at the bottom. Oh, it's about it's, the headcount it's, piece. It's about the headcount. There is a clown emoji too, which is pretty fun. <laughs> yes. So new goal in life. Boom. Ship it. This Thank is you. the type of listener mail that I'm into. Uh, Dougal's the problem with that is when you're the head of a publicly traded company, if your uh, financials are LOL worthy, they're going to get out there. It's not really something you can control. <laughs> you can't just be like, I don't like this number. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Can we just leave? Can we just redact? I'm going to put 10Ks out there with full redacted financials. There's uh, one comment, and, and this is half about the markup, that says, what type of mentally ill institution is still holding assets here? The mental hospital? <laughs> like, Man. It's Ooh. hyperbolic, but oh, it yeah. makes you chuckle. Yeah. There you go. Thank you. Thank you for the listener mail. All right. Is that a yeah. wrap? That's a wrap. Uh, hit us with a review. We haven't mentioned it in a while, but we have some really awesome premium subscribers that help keep the wheels turning behind the scenes here. Help make sure we're not in the middle of the Airbnb bubble. If you want to support the show that way, we would greatly appreciate it. And you can find that at skippydougals.supercast.com. Uh, there's multiple tiers of subscriptions there. You get the podcast early. Um, and sometimes you get some additional premium content from us. Always rate and review the show to help people find us and we need a tiebreaker to figure out who's right on the winnie the pooh copyright law debate so i i do because i think it should be the first vote that hits the inbox <laughs> team skippy team doogles and then it's over <laughs> so it's like golden goal yeah okay yeah. it's cool all right let's do it yeah <laughs> thank you everybody. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us today guys 